You're listening to The Murder in My Family, brought to you by Abject Entertainment. Be sure to check out some of the other great true crime podcasts from this network, including Missing Persons, DNA ID, Scene of the Crime, Zodiac Speaking, Beyond Bizarre True Crime, Citizen Detective, and Campus Killings. All of these podcasts are available for you to binge on right now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Subscribe where you're listening to this podcast so you don't miss an episode. The views and opinions expressed by guests on this podcast do not necessarily represent those of the podcast, its host, or sponsors. If you would like to discuss the murder in your family on this podcast, please be sure to visit themurderinmyfamily.com for more information. You can support this podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash the murder in my family. This episode may contain unsettling material or subject matter. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for this episode of The Murder of My Family. I'm your host, Mike Morford. In this episode, we'll be discussing the tragic and cold-blooded 1997 murder of a 16-year-old boy in Virginia who was killed at his place of employment on just his second day working there. His untimely death would devastate his family, but also help propel his grief-stricken father on a mission to help other heartbroken families. We'll dive into this case after some quick housekeeping. Independent podcasts like this one depend on word of mouth to bring in new listeners. So if you find that you enjoy this show, please take a minute to rate and review it wherever you listen to your podcast, and be sure to introduce a friend to the show and invite them to listen. With your help, The Murder of My Family can continue to grow and reach a new audience. To learn more about the show or the cases we discuss, please visit themurderofmyfamily.com. You can also find us on Twitter with the handle at murderofmyfam or by searching for the Murder of My Family podcast on Facebook. If you'd like to support this show through a Patreon donation, it's always appreciated, and you can do so by visiting patreon.com forward slash the Murder of My Family. Benefits of supporting the show on Patreon include early access to ad-free episodes of the show, plus bonus content not heard in regular episodes. Support may also include thank you cards, stickers, and more. If you prefer to, you can also support the show through a PayPal donation by visiting paypal.me forward slash the murder of my family. In each episode, I'll give shout outs to any new supporters. In this episode, I'd like to thank Amy Davis and Lynette Duncan. And thank you to all the supporters that generously donate to help keep the show growing and improving. One last note, please consider supporting any of the sponsors that you hear on the murder of my family, the way that those sponsors support the show. It's with our sponsor support that the show can go on and continue to provide a platform to share these stories with you in every episode. Thank you. And now on with the show. William Benjamin Jenkins was born on September 16, 1980, to parents Bill and Catherine Jenkins. He had a brother Paul and a sister Mary. Although William's parents divorced, they stayed close and on good terms. William was raised in Highland Springs, Virginia. As a younger child, he attended various schools, including Highland Springs Elementary and Fairfield Middle School. William moved to Tennessee for a short time and was enrolled in Oak Meadow School, a homeschooling program in Tennessee, since December 1996. 
But after almost two years, he moved back to Virginia to live in Richmond, where his mom took a job as a midwife. Once in Richmond, William began attending Highland Springs High School. William had his own style and was casual and laid back. He'd frequently be seen wearing flannel shirts and ponchos. William loved music, especially guitar. By all accounts, William was friendly and likable and stayed out of trouble and got along with just about everyone. Like many teenagers his age, William was excited to start working and saving up money. One thing he really wanted to save for was a guitar, so he could hone his guitar skills. Friends and family recall how excited he was to start his new job at a local restaurant called Bullets. August 1997 should have been the beginning of a new chapter of William's life, where he began working for his future. Tragically, though, on August 12, 1997, he became Henrico County, Virginia's 17th homicide victim of the year. On August 12, 16-year-old William was working just his second shift at his new job. His first day had been spent washing dishes all day, but William was ready to take on new tasks at work. And his second day, he'd wound up working till closing. William wasn't supposed to work this late shift, but wanting to help a fellow employee who needed time off and looking to earn a little more money in the process, he worked the shift filling in for his co-worker. In just two days at his job, William was proving he was eager and determined to be a dependable and hard-working employee. He called his mom to tell her that he'd be working till closing. At 10.40 p.m., about 40 minutes after the restaurant closed, William started to head home for the night. The assistant manager of the store was still inside, getting ready to turn off the lights and set the store's alarm. That's when a man approached William outside the rear door and, at gunpoint, tried to get him to go back into the restaurant. But the door behind William had locked. William cooperated and knocked on the door and asked the assistant manager to let him back inside. Not knowing exactly what was going on, she opened the door for William, and when she realized that the store was being robbed, she screamed. It was then that William's attacker, without warning or hesitation, fired one shot from a semi-automatic pistol. The bullet fired from the gun struck William in his neck, and he was killed instantly when his jugular vein and carotid artery were damaged. The gunman had a bullet's t-shirt wrapped around his face to hide his identity, and he forced the assistant manager to open the safe. He stole $1,787 in cash and the woman's purse before he fled, leaving the assistant manager frightened but unharmed. The man ran to a Nissan Maxima that was parked in the parking lot. Alertly, one of William's co-workers, who was also outside waiting for a ride home, caught the aftermath of the situation and called 911 from a payphone located outside of the restaurant and provided the car's description. It just so happened that there was a police car almost across the street one minute away who quickly responded to the scene. And as they arrived, they spotted the Nissan Maxima as it pulled out, heading toward the Cardinal Forest Departments. Police initiated a stop and the car pulled over. Inside, police found the assistant manager's purse on the floor of the car. 23-year-old Charles Bass, also called Wild Child, was arrested, along with an 18-year-old woman and a 17-year-old girl who all lived in the same house. William's family has asked that the two younger suspects' privacy be respected. It turns out that the three had been staking the restaurant out. The 17-year-old had gone inside to use the restroom and get a head count on the workers inside. They had tried to get into the locked restaurant earlier in the night, with the 17-year-old knocking and asking for a cup of water, but the staff motioned for her to use the pickup window and didn't unlock the doors. It wasn't until William exited to leave that they struck. Police went to William's home and broke the terrible news to his mom that her son was dead. They then called William's dad, Bill, and told him that he needed to come over to the home as soon as possible, 
but stopped short of telling him that William was dead. During the drive, Bill thought about every possible scenario, none of them good. By the time he arrived, he knew deep down that his son was gone. The shocked and saddened family was left to deal with the aftermath of 16-year-old William's senseless and tragic murder. News that police had quickly captured the suspects was of little value at the time to his family as they grieved over William. They somehow managed to move forward and made final plans for the 16-year-old. A service was held at the Pargram Chapel and Woody Funeral Home in Richmond, followed by funeral services at the West End Assembly of God with interment at the Mount Zion Methodist Church in Shiloh, Virginia. As tough as it was for William's family to say goodbye to him, they were moved to see so many people, including the 16-year-old's friends and peers who came to pay their last respects. As William's family tried to move forward, prosecutors were moving forward to punish William's killer. They planned to seek the death penalty against Charles Bass, but William's family asked the state not pursue the death penalty. They wanted Bass to pay for his crime, but not with his life. Prosecutors respected the family's wishes and instead sought a life imprisonment charge. All three defendants pleaded guilty to their charges. Charles Bass was sentenced to life in prison for capital murder and robbery charges. The 18-year-old accomplice was given a sentence of 14 years for robbery, murder, and felony firearm charges. And on those same charges, the 17-year-old accomplice received an 18-year sentence. Virginia doesn't allow parole, so Bass's sentence will be a true life sentence. He'll die in prison. The three criminals couldn't appeal their convictions or sentences since they pleaded guilty. It would seem that by now, the two younger suspects are out of prison for this crime. But Charles Bass remains behind bars. William's father, Bill, a professor of speech and drama at Virginia Union University, was moved to start a website to honor his son's memory. Willsworld.com is a way to keep his son's memory alive, talk about the case, and in the end, to try and help others who may be going through a similar tragedy. Eventually, Bill Jenkins wrote a book called What to Do When the Police Leave, A Guide to the First Days of Traumatic Loss. I've often spoken to people who describe there not being a manual for what to do when you lose a loved one to violence. Well, this book by Bill may be that manual. The book, available on Amazon, is for those who suddenly find themselves in his position, lost, grieving, and in need of support and hope. It has resources and phone numbers, as well as practical advice and words of encouragement. Bill Jenkins has continued his advocacy since William's death. He wrote a play called Hearts Full of Tears about a family struggling with grief due to gun violence. We often mention how the tragic cases we talk about on the show have a ripple effect, and how the surviving family members' lives are forever changed, often not in good ways. But sometimes there are good things that come about for survivors. Bill found love with his new wife, Jennifer Bishop Jenkins. She too had survived the tragic murders of multiple family members, and I hope to tell her story in the not-too-distant future. It turns out that Jennifer and Bill met at a murder victims conference. Bill and Jennifer are both members of the organization Murder Victims Families for Human Rights, which was launched in 2004 on International Human Rights Day. Today, Bill continues to honor his son's memory and help families in need. Together alongside Jennifer, they work to be advocates for those that need help most during the worst times of their lives. I sat down with Bill to discuss his son William's tragic murder, but more importantly to focus on his life and on Bill's efforts to help other people. That conversation is coming up in just a moment.
Hi, Bill, and thanks for coming on the podcast to discuss your son William's case with us. I'm happy to be here, Mike. Uh, it's uh, a lovely day here in Virginia, and I uh, hope it's nice where you are, too. It's Florida, so I definitely can't complain. Um, okay, well, then that, yeah, <laughs> I, I, I surrender. <laughs> yeah. Well, your son's case, I was reading about it before we got on here. It's very mm-hmm. tragic. He's just 16 years old when he lost his life. I think it's it's especially tragic because he was just in the wrong place at the wrong time, working his second day at his new job when he crossed paths with his uh, killers on August 12th, 1997. Mm-hmm. Before we get into the circumstances around that and what exactly happened to him, can you tell us a little bit about William himself and maybe share some of your memories uh, with us about him? Sure. Um, and while I'm doing that, I'd like to reframe what you just said. Um, William wasn't in the wrong place at the wrong time. William was exactly where he was supposed to be when he was supposed to be there. He was at work on his second day of work at a fast food restaurant. He'd just gotten the job. Um, he uh, was um, actually working for another employee uh, till closing uh, because that uh, that young man had come up to him the day before and asked him if he could cover for him so that he, the guy could go out on a date with his girlfriend that night. Um, but William was exactly where he was supposed to be. And we often think in terms of uh, the victim community uh, how um, our loved ones are where they're supposed to be. The people that aren't where they suppo- where they should be at that point are the people that are doing the victimization, the 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 perpetrators, the criminals, or the uh, just the you know the people that are um, you know driving drunk or whatever it is. Um, and uh, so I, I invite everybody to sort of reframe that kind of concept that uh, victims are often exactly where they're supposed to be. It's um, a lot of other folks that aren't. Yeah, it's a, and that's a very good point you make because he mm-hmm. was it's not like he was out getting into trouble, doing something, putting huh. himself in a dangerous situation. He was just going to job exactly. and excited to, to work, <clears throat> make a little extra cash. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Uh, yeah, he was a 16-year-old, like most 16-year-olds. Um, of course, my 16-year-old was better than everybody else's, but, you know, that's just my own personal opinion. Um, he's just a lovely kid, and and we miss him very much. He had a younger brother and sister, and uh, they adored him, and uh, we had uh, uh, just a, a great relationship. I uh, One of the things that happened that summer is that William would come to work with me. Uh, I, I teach uh, at the college level, so I have summers off, and in the summertime, I would work with the community um, children's theater program and design and build their scenery and do the lighting and do the production work on their show. And, and William had come with me um, every day that, that summer and, and uh, worked, uh, worked with me alongside me. We had a great time to connect and, and interact with each other. And uh, um, he was uh, just you know, a great guy. He, he was uh, going to be a great guitarist. He was practicing hard and um, working on uh, his, uh, his skills as a musician. Um, he wrote poetry. He, he was just a very sensitive kid. He had very good friends and, and clung to them like glue. Um, I, I was amazed at the funeral. Uh, there were so many young people there. I, I just uh, really couldn't believe it. In fact, one of the things that we did was, uh, and this is something we learned and 
later put into uh, the book that I wrote, um, you know, just to help people, you know, with this kind of situation, because nobody ever gives you a, a manual on how to how to deal with all of this. Um, I sure didn't get one. Um, and then uh, but we put in the put in the book that uh, one of the things that we did was we we set aside a room at the funeral home that was just for the kids so that they could grieve and mourn in their own way and not feel like they were you know, getting around, uh, getting in the way with the adults. And, um, and that was a, a very successful thing that we did. Uh, they just, uh, you know, they had, <laughs> we, we allowed them to put anything into the, into the casket that they wanted. And, you know, they put pictures and drawings and guitar picks and, uh, tons of stuff, uh, that went with him. And, um, it was, a it was a very powerful time. Uh, the, um, uh, you could tell that he meant a lot uh, to a lot of these kids. In some respects, he was the big brother that they didn't have. In some respects, he was just the anchor that they uh, that they clung to in their own uh, in their, their own growing up. And um, he's just uh, you know my son, uh, superhero. And uh, you know that that seeing that outpouring from his friends, from people that knew him and that cared for him, was that, uh, obviously you you were going through a heartbreaking situation, but was that something that sort of uplifted you, uplifted you a little bit? Oh yeah. Uh, I mean, anytime that, you know, uh, whether they're with us or not, anytime that you get affirmation that your child is uh, doing something right in the world, uh, you feel proud as a parent. And um, I had an experience recently when I was uh, talking to the parent of one of the uh, young women who was uh, in our our production uh, at Dominican University where I teach, and I was telling her how much we, we just thought of her daughter and how, how great a job she was doing. And, and she does so, so many great things that, uh, um, that uh, throughout the year. And, and her mom just really took that to heart. She, she was just overwhelmed because she didn't hear about this stuff. <laughs> and I, and, uh, you know, parents, parents love to hear about when their kids do well. And, um, you know, it, it was, uh, it was quite a, an experience for me. So I'm, I'm trying to think back to when I was 16, it's been so long now, but, um, you, you know, I'm, I'm thinking back that, if I was in William's shoes, I'd be excited to make some cash and maybe buy yep. a guitar, maybe save mm -hmm. up for a car, whatever. Was he yep, excited absolutely. about this new job and uh, taking on this new responsibility? He was, and he was, um, uh, gosh, um, you know, it was, it was, it was weird because it's the thing that killed him. Right. <laughs> um, so there's a lot uh, to unpack there when you sit down afterwards and you just, you know, throw something at the wall and say, why couldn't they have just waited another two days to, to hire him? Right. Or one more day to hire him. Uh, why couldn't his starting day been one day later? Or, um, these are the kinds of things that, uh, that will drive you crazy if you, if you dwell on them. And, uh, you can't, you can't ask those questions, you know, for yourself as a, as a victim, but he was excited, uh, and, uh, was, uh, willing to do anything they asked him to do. You know, the first day he spent a lot of time, you know, cleaning stuff up and, 
just learning the ropes uh, the way you would at any any uh, job. Um, and he uh, was, you know, like you said, he w- he was working for somebody else. He was he was trying to help be helpful. Uh, when he was killed, um, he was working uh, till closing, as I said. And the manager was a 20, 20 something, 25 year old woman, I believe, um, who was uh, locking up and closing up. This all happened right at closing time, which we all know is uh, one of the most dangerous times to work in, in retail or because uh, it's, it's such a vulnerable time. Uh, he was uh, uh, another young man was working with him. Uh, the other young man left and walked around to the other side of the building to wait for his mom to pick him up. Uh, William, you know, I know exactly what he was doing. He he was just sticking around. He didn't have to be, you know, he he was going to walk home, so he uh, didn't didn't really have to be on a schedule or anything. And um, he uh, was just sticking around to make sure that the other uh, that the manager was going to be all right. You know, um, kind of kid that would think to do that, and uh, then they would leave together, and you know, he'd, he'd make sure that she got off okay. Um, but he, uh, you know, one of the last things that he did was he was going to go outside and take the trash with him and put it in a dumpster and, and, uh, she was going to lock up and, uh, turn off the lights, turn on the alarm. And when he went out the back door, there was a man who was standing beside the door waiting for the next person to come out. Um, and then he had a gun. Uh, and when William came through that door, he grabbed William from behind, put the gun up to his neck and told him to, uh, turn around and open the door. Uh, well, William didn't have any keys or anything. So, uh, he knocked on the door. He, as far as we know, he remained calm. He, he didn't escalate the situation. Um, as I understand it, he was actually bigger than the other guy. I mean, he, it, he you know, he, you know, who knows what could have happened, but, um, he uh, turned around and, you know, he got the memo, you know, don't escalate the situation, just give them the money and they'll leave, you know, they'll leave and we'll sort it out later. Uh, he knocked on the door. Uh, the manager came and looked out the, the peephole and uh, she saw that there was something weird going on. And um, she said, what's going on? And William said, uh, you have to open the door. And she did. She unlocked the door. She opened it. And as soon as the door was unlocked and opened, uh, for whatever reason, we still don't know why, um, uh, and the man fired the gun and the bullet went straight to William's neck, uh, one side to the other. And, uh, he, he was literally dead before he hit the floor. Um, and then the man pointed the gun at the manager and said, open the safe or you're next. She went to the safe, um, of course, you know, when when you're so traumatized, uh, your fine motor skills just go right out the window. And uh, it took her five tries to open the safe. Uh, she finally managed to do it. And uh, then he told her to lay down on the floor face down. Uh, she didn't know whether she was going to die, too. Uh, he took the money from the safe, uh, $1,700. Um, all of a sudden now he's got all sorts of stuff to carry and he doesn't have anything to carry it in. So he grabbed her purse, stuffed the money in the purse, stuffed the gun in the purse, ran out the back door uh, and down behind the uh, building where he had parked with uh, where there was a 17 year old girl, an 18 year old girl who were his accomplices that night who were waiting in the car. Uh, of course, now they heard the gunshots and they're like, 
oh my gosh, what's just happened? What have we gotten ourselves into? Um, and they drive away at a high rate of speed, as they say. Um, and uh, the key to the whole thing, though, was that this young man who left the restaurant before William did was standing on the other side of the building next to the payphone. And this was before, you know, every 16 year old had a cell phone in their pocket. Uh, and he went to the payphone. He dialed 911. There was a police officer in his vehicle directly across the, the main street from where the restaurant was located. Uh, the dispatch call goes out. He gets the call. Uh, he comes out of the the, um, the parking lot that he was in just doing some paperwork and catching up on things. He comes out and he sees the car pulling out and driving off. So he follows the car uh, and everybody is arrested you know, like minutes later. Mm. Um, and William's dead and everybody's standing around scratching their heads saying, OK, um, <laughs> this is bad. And, um, so the, uh, I got a call now. I did not live with William and his fa- and his mom and his brother and sister. Um, we had divorced a couple of years before, but, um, I got a call at, uh, 2 AM, um, police officer on the line. Uh, they had my phone number, but they didn't have my address. So, um, he asked me to come over to William's house. And I, I, I remember all of this very vividly. Uh, I would imagine kind of the way, yeah, it's, it's trauma night time and, and a police mm-hmm. officer is calling you to come over. You can't. Be yeah. There. Yeah. I always tell my friends, don't call me after 10 o'clock, please. Just don't <laughs> um, even now. Uh, but um, the um, uh, so I, I asked him, uh, is this something we talked about over the phone? He said, no, sir, it's not. Uh, just drive safely. And so I start, I get up, I, I tell my wife, I'm, and I have to go over to Williams and um, I get in the car and I drive away. It was about a 10 minute drive. And in that time, I had some time to think. And, you know, my brain being what it was, I just went through all the scenarios and figured, well, if William was hurt and was in the hospital, I would be going to the hospital. If William was just in the biggest trouble of his young life and we needed to have a chat with the police officer, I'm sure that the police officer would have been more reassuring. So by the time I got there, I had pretty well figured this is going to be really bad news. And um, so I walked in the front door, uh, police officer standing there. I look over to my left and there's William's mom with a a woman that I didn't know sitting on the sofa. Uh, William's mom was crying. Um, and found out that they, that this was a woman from the social work, uh, it was a social worker that came with the police officer to do death notification, which is a very good thing to do. And, um, and I, I walked in, the police officer looked at me, introduced himself and I introduced myself and I looked right at him and I said, is this something I need to sit down for? And he said, uh, yes, sir, I think it is. And, uh, so I sat down and he proceeded to give me the death notification that William had been killed. And, um, then, um, you know, after that, um, the rest is all just details, right. And he left some, some materials that that he always carried around for such horrible situations. Um, and, um, he and the social worker, you know, stayed for a couple more minutes and then they had to go back to work. And I looked at William's mom and I said, what do we do now? Mm. And she didn't have any ideas either started calling relatives and friends and just started the process of trying to, to 
get started on this road and this journey that was going to take us, you know, to where we are now. Were you in shock? Were you numb? I mean, how do you process that news? Well, I, I think um, I think she was more in shock than I was because I had kind of mentally prepared myself for bad news. Um, if I had been given the notification over the phone, I probably would have been hit by a stronger sense of of the unexpected, uh, which is what really is one of the responses that that is uh, one of the things that causes that shock response. But um, it was, uh, you know, I just tried to get through it. Um, we, uh, I knew that there were going to be people coming by the house the next day. Um, I knew that uh, there were things that needed to be done. Uh, I called my folks. I called her folks. Uh, her folks lived about an hour and a half away, so they got up and got headed in uh, to Richmond. Um, and uh, I, I just did, you know, puttered around. Um, and at some point, I decided that I needed to go and get some things to help, you know, fix the house up a little bit. I mean, she didn't have curtains in the windows. They just moved in fairly recently. So um, there were needed some curtains in the windows, things like that. So I just decided to be useful. And um, I went over to, uh, to Lowe's and uh, I knew that, you know, there are restock crews that work there all night long. I knew that. Um, the trick was, you know, trying to make sure that, that they didn't think I was trying to rob the place. But um, I, I drove over there. Um, I knocked on the door uh, and explained to the manager what I needed. And uh, he grabbed a young man at random and said, follow this gentleman around and, uh, and keep track of what, they, uh, uh, what he needs and, and what he takes with him. And we'll, uh, we'll sort it out in a couple of days because, of course, the cash registers are closed. So. And a uh, young man did that. He, a uh, young African American man, like high school, maybe young college. Um, and he walked around with me, and we we got all this stuff. And then we walked out to the to the uh, drive uh, to the to my car after I picked up some curtains and just things that that they needed. And he said to me, "I'm really sorry about what happened to your son." And I told him I appreciated that. And then he said something that just knocked me over. He said. Uh, my brother was killed a couple of years ago. Hmm. So, you know, I don't know how the universe works, Mike. <laughs> I've given up on trying to figure that a long time ago. But the, the fact that, that that this was, you know, this coincidence or whatever, you know, him being there and being the guy that, that walked out with me to my car was, um, uh, that was pretty amazing. Um, but I, uh, I looked at him and I said, uh, how do you, how do you do it? How do you get through this? And, uh, he just looked at me with the saddest eyes and he said, you just do. Mm. And, uh, I gave him a big hug and gave me a big hug and, and then parking lot of those. And it's probably the best advice that I ever got from anybody in the entire time that I've been dealing with all of this. Well. Wow. And and just the fact that you cross paths with someone that's gone through the same thing with you so soon after, mm -hmm. after yeah. that. Well, um, so you know you've got to transition now. You've got to deal with this aftermath. You've got to plan for your son's funeral, and then you've mm -hmm. got this whole 
uh, ordeal ahead of you, I'm imagining, of, okay, what happens to the people that did this? Are they going to jail? Then you've got to face the mm -hmm. court. Can you talk a little yeah. bit about that path? Uh, um, I know on your website you didn't want to name these people because you didn't want to dignify sure. them by naming them, but generally speaking, even if you don't want to name them, were they career criminals? Were they people that were involved in this no. kind of stuff? The two, the two, um, girls that were involved, um, I, I would say they were in the wrong place at the wrong time <laughs> with the wrong guy. Um, they're just, you know, hanging out with this guy who was, and he's one of those kids that was kind of in a lot of trouble, um, he, he grew up in a, in a home without a dad and, and his mom was having trouble, you know, keeping him on the straight and narrow or whatever, however you want to deal with that. But, um, he, he was a kid that had problems and, uh, he just wanted, he figured the easiest way to, to make money was to take it from other people instead of going and working for it like the rest of us poor slobs do. Um. And uh, he had these two friends and they kind of looked up to him because, you know, however, I'm not quite sure what their relationship was, but I do know that uh, one of the girls was in the foster care system um, and uh, they sort of all wound up together in the same night and, and there was a gun in the apartment and he found it and he said, oh, let's take this and let's all go out and and, uh, you know, make some easy money. And, uh, so they drove around for a while and, um, finally, uh, landed behind the restaurant where William worked. And then, um, at that point, uh, I understand the two girls came up to the window and kind of checked the place out. And then he came up right at closing time and finally got up his nerve to do something. Um, but he was, you know, it's hard to dis describe and define why people do the things they do when they, when they move into this direction. Um, you know, it, you know, his mom was a lovely person, <laughs> met her at court, uh, and his sister, you know, and when we went to court, um, we, uh, we fully expected to go in and have a full, full trial, you know, full blown, you know, law and order trial uh, jury and everybody and everything. And, uh, we went in and, um, the victim advocates who, uh, truly are the, the unsung heroes of the criminal justice system. They're the people that take care of the, the, uh, victims and, and walk us through the process and help us understand what to, what to expect. And, uh, generally are there for us and help us, uh, in a lot of, a lot of ways that it's an extraordinary career. Um, and, uh, have the greatest respect for them. And I actually even train many of them now in the work that I do as I've learned more about this whole process. But, um, uh, they came out and they said, uh, we got to hurry up and go in because, um, you're not going to believe this, but, uh, his mom has come all the way down from Baltimore, which is like a two and a half, three hour drive. Uh, and she's in the back with him. And, uh, so basically what happened was she got hit, she got him in the back room and she basically read in the riot act. He was, he was going to go in and say, and cause as much trouble for everybody and just, 
just be as, as uh, you know, uncooperative as possible. And she got him in the back room and basically was, uh, you know, told him, you just do not do the, this to these people. You, you can't, you know, you're, you were going to go out there and you're going to be a man. You're going to stand up for what you did and you're going to, you're going to take your, take your punishment and you're going to, uh, you're not going to make this more difficult than it has to be. And, and he came out and pled guilty. So, um, mm. we were, we were pretty surprised. I mean, there, there are some really amazing people in this world. And like they say, not all angels, you know, have wings. Um, and not all superheroes have capes. Uh, it's, uh, but the experience was, was, was pretty remarkable. And, um, so, uh, but before that, uh, I was, found myself uh, a couple of weeks after the murder, I found myself in the prosecutor's office uh, while he was starting to get the plans laid for the trial. And uh, he said, Mr. Jenkins, I want you to know, uh, I just want you to you know, be aware of how we're going to be handling this case. He said, this is a case that qualifies for, for the death penalty. This is capital murder. It was a, a murder that was committed in commission with a, in, during the commission of a felony. And it's like, holy cow, um, now I got to deal with the death penalty and capital punishment and um, maybe, you know, having to watch somebody die and, uh, you know, be put to death because that's what you do. You go to the execution and everybody interviews you and you wind up on the front page of the paper and so does the guy's story. Um, you, you get, uh, you know, he gets three quarters of the story and the victim's family gets whatever's left, uh, in terms of column inches. And so, uh, at, at the time I, I had always been opposed to the death penalty on a personal and, you know, you know, ideological level. Uh, but now I had to deal with it, uh, as a real thing in my life. And what am I going to say? Uh, do I support the prosecutor? Or do I do I not support the prosecutor? How you know? What do I do? I stand up for what I've always believed in. And uh, I, I again, I, I, I said um, I, I'd rather you didn't do that. If if I have any say in the matter, I I'd, I'd prefer that you not pursue the death penalty in the case. You don't have to do it for me to get justice. You do not have to, don't feel like you're doing it for the victims. Cause you know, I had just seen a couple of uh, uh, reports uh, in the news uh, in the newspapers uh, on um, uh, recent execution that had taken place in Virginia and it wasn't pretty. It, it was, you know, I read, uh, I read through the, the, um, the case and, and I got down to the very end and they were actually, you know, devoting their couple of inches to the, to the victim's family. And the victim's family didn't want to make a statement, but one of the people, uh, one of the members of the family, you know, made a, made a statement for everyone. And he basically said, we've been waiting for six years for this and now we can get on with our lives again. And I thought, oh my gosh, um, <laughs> I, this it's definitely the right decision to not pursue the death penalty if you're a victim, because if you're going to put your your life on hold, waiting for this big major event to happen to you um, or not, depending on what happens with appeals and all the other 
stuff that you have to go through. This is, uh, this is, it's, 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 uh, it's just too much to bear. Um, so I'm glad I, that I did that. And <clears throat> I'm glad that I, I basically said, don't, don't go for the death penalty. The prosecutor then he didn't have to, but he did. Uh, and, um, uh, agreed uh later on um that uh you know a, a plea bargain with life in prison without parole would be uh suitable justice and i i felt the same way um so the the man that killed my son is uh in prison for the rest of his life never going to get out and i'm okay with that uh, yeah. and, and you take uh some comfort in knowing that he's never going to kill someone else's child and take them away from their parents Exactly. Uh, and, uh, you know, public safety is really what the death penalty started out being about in the first place. And now that we have better, better prisons and, and a lot of, uh, a better, uh, a better way to keep track of everybody, um, more secure systems, uh, you can, you can satisfy that need for the, for the, um, um, for the public safety issue. And if you satisfy that, then everything else becomes a lot more emotional and a lot more, um, you know, we have to teach this person that they shouldn't have done that, or we've got to make sure that other people don't do this, um, you know, which I don't think is much of a calculus when somebody starts to commit a crime and, and gets caught up in the whole thing. So, yeah. I mean, you know, the, the guy theoretically would have known that if he killed William during a felony, that he would be eligible for the death penalty anyway, and he still did it. So logically, the deterrent thing just doesn't work. Yeah. Um, and a lot of other people will do that as well. So uh, I, I think that uh, it was actually more of a surprise for him that that we decided to save his life. And and uh, um, and now Jennifer and I, uh, my wife and I work with uh, uh, death penalty advocacy programs. And um, and, you know, there there are some people that have uh, that have figured it out and they are living a better life, uh, you know, than they used to, um, even though they may be on death row, they're, they're not the same people they used to be. Then there's some others that just never changed at all. And they're still just as much a danger now as they were, as they ever were. So, Mm. uh, and Jennifer can tell you more about that in her own situation when, when you interview her. Yeah, absolutely. sort of move forward a little bit because as yeah, you sure. mentioned it you you sort of um, you had an outcome that you felt was just uh and it was mm-hmm. something you were comfortable with and then uh, you didn't have to drag out this thing waiting for this final experience to to have some kind of peace uh the way that mm-hmm. other family you mentioned uh so you sort of you sort of were able to move on to the next chapter uh it sounds mm-hmm. like um without dragging through this uh, eventually you started a website, willsworld.com, um, mm-hmm. which is, it, it seems like a, a focused on your son's memory and what happened mm-hmm. to him and sort of, um, can you talk a little bit about that site and creating it? And has that helped you? Was that helping you to heal in any way? 
I think it did. Uh, one of the things that we know about people that have experienced trauma is the best thing that you can do is not be afraid to process it. Uh, that's one of the problems that, that many people uh, have, and it's the thing that kind of gets them stuck sometimes because the only way to process memories is to go back through or process the trauma is to go back through the memories and to work your way through them. Uh, and that's scary because processing those memories and, and going back and, and reliving them or, or contemplating them, ruminating on them uh, can be uh, extremely painful uh, and, and make you miserable. Um, one of the things that I did, though, is I had this idea in my head that uh, I wanted to do a website uh, because um, you know, websites, you know, it, and this was actually kind of in, I wouldn't call it the early years of the internet, but it was in the baby steps years of the internet <clears throat> back in 1997, 1998. And, uh, this is back when, you know, web addresses were still costing, you know, hundreds of dollars and stuff like that. But, um, I, I wanted to, get, uh, I want to get a memorial site up and running and I went ahead and, um, uh, and did that. Uh, I got the software and, and, uh, put it all together. And in doing that, it was very helpful because I had to go back through and look at the pictures. I had to go back through and write the data and write the, inf the content. Um, and, you know, at the same time, I was also trying to figure out what I wanted to do that's going to be a, have a broader impact than just a, a website. And so I was also working on my book, uh, What to Do When the Police Leave, A Guide to the First Days of Traumatic Loss. And I figured, you know, if I'm going to write a book, I don't want to write a book about what happened because there were quite a few people in the victim community, especially in the victim publishing community that had published books like that. They were basically saying, you know, nobody, nobody's going to read your story. You're not John Walsh. Um, you're not a famous person that's had this kind of thing happen to you. And so, uh, you know, I realized that, you know, the website then could be where I tell the story. And then the book would be a, that manual that I didn't have when I was, um, uh, when I was um, uh, victimized at the at the very beginning, uh, and so that really helped me to clarify and define what each was going to do, uh, and that way um, I made the book about uh, strictly about how um, how this affects us, uh, how to talk to the children in the family about what happens, happen what happens uh, during a death notification, what happens during a, a police investigation. Um, I um, uh, had to, uh, you know, put information in there on how to plan a funeral on short notice, who the victim advocates uh, are and what their job is and why you should trust them, uh, all sorts of stuff. Um, and uh, I, uh, I, I wrote that and got it all put together. And then uh, so that was the practical side of what I wanted to do. And then the memorial side then was the website. And I, I intended to, <laughs> this is kind of, you know, the way things always work, though, uh, I intended to um, uh, stay on top of it and update it with uh, resources as they became available. And as I discovered them and and put, uh, you know, put all, you know, all sorts of uh, 
information on there and keep up with website, other websites that were doing similar things. And of course that never happened. <laughs> At least I got it put together, but I, yeah. you know, when it comes to, gee, maybe it's time for me to sit down and, and uh, work on the website for a couple hours tonight. You know, that's the part that, that I kind of fell down on, but it's still, you know, it's still there. Yeah, it's still it's still a great site. And I love the title of the book, uh, What to Do When the Police Leave a Guide to the First Days mm -hmm. of Traumatic Loss, because I, I can't tell you how many people I talk to that say, you know, I didn't have a manual to mm -hmm. what happens when when yeah. my loved one goes missing or they're murdered or um sure. so it I think your your you know, this advice you would offer in the book and based on your own experiences and what you've learned and stuff has, has got to be helpful to people. Where can people find the book, by the way? Uh, you can get it on Amazon. Uh, and, you know, you know you're an author when uh, uh, that has really, really made it in the publishing world when somebody can buy your book on Amazon used for $2.50. But um, feel free to go ahead and do that, folks, if that's what you if you need a book. Um, uh, victim advocacy programs, and you can also get it in any bookstore. You can just ask and they will, they will go to the, they'll get it from their supplier. Um, I did self-publish it. I didn't go through a major, uh, publisher, uh, primarily because no major publisher wanted it. Um, and, uh, again, you know, they kept thinking, and this is the feedback I got. They kept thinking it was a book about my story and they just didn't want another, you know, victim story out there. And it's like, no, that's not what it is. Please just read the book. And I finally just went ahead and read the manuscript. Uh, and then I finally just went ahead and published it myself, being the little red hen uh, that I am. Uh, caught uh, uh, the attention of Patricia Cornwell, who um, was very aware of the of the uh, situation because she she at the time lived here in Richmond, uh, and so she had heard about this. And I became actually we became very very good acquaintances. And uh, and she wrote the foreword for my my uh, books, what I call my bookstore version. I had a couple of uh, early starts that were kind of just for the victim advocacy community and. Um, my very first effort, I took down to an, a, um, an organization, a, a conference for an organization called National Organization of Victim Assistance. And um, I had no idea what I was doing. I had, I had no clue what the, who these people were. I just knew that my victim advocates had, had told me, you know, you if you're going to do something with this, you really should take it down there, uh, down to the conference, the, the annual conference, and, uh, and see what they say in August. And so I did. Um, and, uh, I was inundated as soon as people saw the book on the table the, and the exhibit hall, they were just, they just, they were piled three, four deep around my table. Um, and, you know, sharing and saying, Hey, come over, you got to see this. We, we should get this book. And it's, it's, you know, I just kept taking orders and, and selling books. And, and I, I sold like, you know, I had an, an initial run of 500 copies just from a local printer, and I was sold out of them in a, in a couple of months. Uh, half of them were sold during that conference. And it's like, wow, I guess this really is something that I need to do uh, to expand on. And so I finally went out and did a um, – finally have what I call my uh, – um, uh, my my bookstore version, which is a uh, uh, you know suitable for for sale in bookstores, so uh, with all the you know bells and whistles and nice cover and everything. But Patricia Cornell was very kind and and helped me uh, get all of that uh, done and did the forward for it. 
Um, and uh, now I've sold over, I guess, 40,000 copies oh, wow. nationwide and in Canada. So take that, Simon and Schuster. <laughs> that's that's right? fantastic. That's fantastic. <laughs> I know there's there's plenty of listeners that would that would be interested in your book. So that's why you know wanted mm-hmm. to let people know where they can find it. Uh, and, yeah. and you mentioned a, a conference that you went to. And speaking of conferences, mm-hmm. you met your wife Jennifer uh, at one mm-hmm. of these conferences. She too was a victim and survivor yes. who lost mm-hmm. loved ones uh, to murder. And I hope to interview her at some point. Um, how did this is this sort of a full circle thing where the ripple effects of this tragedy results in something positive coming out of it at the end? Well, you know, one of the things that I did when I was, uh, you know, in the first days after William was killed is I kind of had to have a long talk with myself about how I'm going to respond to this. And one of the things that I just determined to do was to, if I had any way of controlling it, uh, I didn't want any more bad things to come out of this situation just because William was killed, which I guess is, you know, why I stood up against the death penalty and the capital punishment, um, you know, decision, um, why I have, uh, worked for victims rights and expanding victims' rights across the country. Um, you know, that conference that I went to, the uh, National Organization of Victim Assistance, I have gone back every single year since and taught workshops to the uh, victim advocates uh, and to, to help them better be able to deal with people like me. Uh, and uh, I also work for the, uh, I go and do workshops for the parents of murdered children. One of the, another one of those organizations that you really wish didn't have to exist, uh, kind of like Mothers Against Drunk Driving and Compassionate Friends and a variety of others. Um, uh, the, those organizations were started by people who were victimized and felt that they needed to do something to help others. And I wanted to do that too. I wasn't going to start an organization, but I could participate in all of those organizations as, uh, as I had the opportunity and as I had the ability uh, work on gun violence prevention issues. I work on, um, uh, and I even, you know, push this beyond the, the strictly the victim world because there there is a lot of injustice in the in the prison system as well that's happening to the people that, yes, they they should be in prison, but they shouldn't be treated like animals. Mm-hmm. Uh, they do deserve some sense of dignity because they will never get better if they don't if we don't do that. Uh, prison release programs. How do we deal with that? People will be getting out of prison. Um, programs uh, to address poverty, which is the chief driver of criminal behavior in our society. Uh, so, um, and then I, uh, a couple of years ago, really started diving into the neurobiology behind uh, trauma, working with uh, um, highly respected um, uh, folks that uh, that do, have been doing this for a living for many years and doing this research for many years, uh, and now I am working with our uh, our, our um, College of Applied Social Sciences at Dominican University uh, to uh, develop and implement a trauma informed leadership uh, master's degree, mm-hmm. uh, so that the uh, people that are uh, that take that program will be better able to deal with people who are experiencing trauma uh, or who have experienced trauma 
in the in the work that they do, whether they're probation officers or police officers or um, uh, guardians ad litem or any number of other jobs out there that intersect with traumatized people and um, are, uh, uh, are are in the business of helping those folks in some way. Well, well, I'm, I'm always so, moved when I hear someone that's gone through something so tragic that winds up using their experience to help other people. And uh, it's a great um, motivator. Yeah, and uh, you know, it's it's good work you're doing. So you know, kudos on on helping others that are going through awful times themselves. Um, as we wrap up here, sure, your son's mm-hmm. been gone now for for 25 years. He'd yeah. be an adult now in his 40s, maybe to have yeah. a family of his own or a career he loved. Mm-hmm. What is it that you miss most about him, and what do you want his legacy to be when, when people hear about him? Oh, gosh. You know, I, I just miss him. Um, it, it's kind of I, I talk about it as like the, the presence of an absence, uh, that there's um, – you know, who knows what he would have been, who knows what he would have done, uh, but one of the things that I can do – is uh, track what would be something of likely his future um, through the people that I know were, who are his same age uh, or his friends and, you know, their lives, their families. Um, and uh, seeing that, I can take joy in that. I can um, see that you know, there's, there's a big hole in my life and it's shaped like William and there is nothing that's going to fill that. And I was talking to a friend about this recently and and I said, look, you know, people with PTSD, people with, uh, um, uh, traumagenic, uh, disorders that, that are, that are affecting them. You know, I, I can, I can tell you exactly how to cure all of these problems, <laughs> all you have to do is give back to us what we've lost, but that can't happen. And so now we, everything else is a plan B, right? Everything else, every treatment, every choice we make, every decision we make is to try to help us feel better and to do better. It's all plan B. So what do we have to do? We have to learn to live with and embrace our plan B's and make the best plan B we possibly can um, to help us move into our future. Mm-hmm. And that's what we try to do. Well, well, definitely some some good advice. And again, I thank you for sharing William's story and sharing your advocacy. And uh, I, I thank you for taking the time. I'm happy to do it, Mike. Thank you once again for joining me for this episode of The Murder of My Family. I'd like to thank Sonny Landon for writing and research assistance in this episode. I want to let everyone know that the show will be on hiatus over the holidays and will return with all new episodes in January 2023, and I hope you'll join me back here for it. Until then, I hope everyone has a safe and happy holiday season. But before you go, remember that every murder victim means something to somebody.